If you could open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? For which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So tonight I have a shorter message for you all for probably obvious reasons, but I pray that it will still be a good message, a powerful message, and it will bless your soul. The Lord can work through many, or he can work through few. One of my favorite stories in, uh, of the entire Bible in the Old Testament is, is the story of Gideon. Everybody remember that story? That Gideon had too many people, and so the Lord kept on making his ranks go smaller and smaller so that he would get the glory. And I pray that this Gideon effect really, in some ways, explains a lot about the world. Why it is there are so few Christians. Why it is that we always seem to be outnumbered. Why it is that we always seem to be losing. It's often the Gideon effect, that God is going to take the small and conquer the many. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So tonight, I want to focus on this text. I really, I don't usually make points, but if I do have a point, I have one point. And it's the main point of the text. And that is, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed, lest we fall away. Before we jump into that important warning, important part, we must ask ourselves, what is being therefore? The text says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed. Well, what is being therefore? Really, anytime you come upon a text and you see, therefore, you should always ask yourself, what is being therefore? And so, Unfortunately, this is the beginning of chapter 2, and so you'd have to go back to chapter 1 to figure out what's being there for. Well, the entire argument of chapter 1 is what's being there for in chapter 2. And to summarize, I was going to ask for a volunteer to read all of chapter 2, but I'll spare you from that. Let me summarize chapter 1, which is being there for in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is all about the superiority of Christ. He is superior over all things. He is the greater revelation. Remember in chapter 1, he contrasts in many times and in many places, God has spoken to our forefathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So there's a contrast between the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation, and Christ is superior. Then it talks about the fact that that Christ has been appointed heir of all things. It then describes him as the maker of the worlds. So I hope you see the kind of juxtaposition, kind of the bookends. He is the creator of everything, and he's been appointed heir of everything. He's the alpha. What's the rest of that? The omega, the beginning and the end. It's all about him from cover to cover. You read the very first verse, the very first beginning of the book says, in the beginning, God. What God? The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. And at the very end, does anybody know, 
go ahead and flip to the very end of the Bible. You tell me. Somebody go there. Go to the very end in the book of Revelation. What's the very last message of the Bible? It says, it says amen, but right before that. Is it come, Lord Jesus? Is that what it is? Is it all about him from cover to cover? Yeah, that's right. And that's what Hebrews is saying. He's the creator. And it's all about him. And once he comes, he'll wrap it all up. And all things will be put in subjection to his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It then describes how he accomplished this great salvation. He's the purger of our sins. He purged our sins by dying on that cross and rising again on the third day. And now he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. He is so much superior over the angels. Why is Christ superior over the angels? Why? The same reason God is superior over you. There's only one being that is self-existent that's always existed from all of eternity. He is the being upon which we use a fancy theological term called a saity. He exists. He is. You are contingent. He upholds you. He sits at the right hand of the Father. So in light of all this, in light of this great God, this great God, Jesus, creator of the world, sustainer of the world, completer of the world, superior over the angels, the eternal Son of God, sits at the right hand of the Father. In light of all of this, now we get back to chapter 2. Go back to Hebrews 2 if you, if you flipped away. Therefore, in light of that great truth, that great gospel, that great God, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, I look around this room, and I see a lot of people who know me. In fact, I think very few of you don't know me. If you don't know me, I'm Jamie. Nice to meet you. Um, if you know me, even a little bit, maybe a little bit, maybe medium, you probably know I like a certain sport. Does anybody know that sport? Yeah, How do you guys know that? It's not the most popular sport. I think I'm probably the only person who likes pickleball in this room. Hopefully I've converted some of you. One day, we can go out there. You'll like it. But I like pickleball, and you guys know that. But what you probably don't know is the last time I played pickleball. The last time I played pickleball was about three months ago. It just happened. I remember it was in February. It was like a nice day. I went out there, and I played, and I had a good time. Before that, when was the last time I played pickleball? It was actually when I got a really bad case of laryngitis, and I completely lost my voice, and I played a tournament, and I lost. That was in October. So I haven't played, I really haven't played pickleball for the last seven months. Now, how much do you think I like pickleball today? You guys who know me, who've heard the little amount of talking that I have done in the last seven months or so, how much has it been about pickleball? Probably not that much. The truth is, I don't like pickleball today nearly as much as I used to. There's a whole lot less today than, I'm almost ashamed to say this, when I played sometimes four hours a day. So not playing basically for seven months, my love for pickleball has drastically decreased than when I played four hours a day. Is that surprising to anybody? Is anybody shocked about that? Is that like some kind of mystery trying to solve that? I think it's pretty simple. And why is that? Why is my love for pickleball decreased? Is it because the game is any less fun? No, the game hasn't changed at all. The game's just as fun as I left it. Is it because the weather is cold? No, look out there. It's not cold. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. In fact, this is the best time of year to play pickleball. It's the best time of year to do anything outside. Why? 
is we're at that really nice point. It's not too hot and not too cold. It's called the spring, right? You like the spring, unless you have allergies. And then you take allergy medication, and then you like the spring again. But yes, this is actually the peak time to play pickleball. So what happened? It's not that the weather is too cold. It's actually the perfect season. It's not that the game has changed. It's not even that really I have changed. I'm kind of still the same person. I'm not fundamentally different. Why did my love for pickleball shrink? Anybody know? Can anybody guess? It's because I neglected it. It's just that simple. It's because I haven't been playing out there. It's because I stopped paying attention to it. Now, why did I stop paying attention to it? Well, two, two reasons. One, I asked some of you to pray for me that I would like pickleball a little bit less. And I think God answered that prayer. God has a way of answering certain prayers. He answered that prayer. And, and the second reason is, I said seven months ago. What happened to me seven months ago? For you guys who know me, what happened seven months ago? Anybody remember? Little, little person out there? Yeah, that's how old Anna is. See, what happened is I had a fifth child, and that child needed me. Or I should more say my wife needed me. So going running off playing four hours of pickleball was just not the thing to do. So instead, I decided to take some time off the court. And so time off the court ended up being days, which turned into weeks, and so forth and so on. Now, when I first took some time off the court, it was killing me. I kept thinking, i got to get back to that court. But as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, I really just haven't thought about pickleball, to be completely honest. In fact, I cannot imagine spending four hours on the court. I just can't imagine. It's like the most giant waste of time ever. Now, I have gained some weight. So I can't imagine as a weight loss program to get back out there. But in general, though, I didn't do it for the weight loss. I just did it for fun. And I really can't imagine of getting out there. Now, why, why am I speaking so much about pickleball? I kind of remind myself right now of Shane. He liked to talk about bikes in his sermon. See, that's what pastors do. They talk about the things they like. Here's the point of the pickleball analogy. I'm trying to give you a concrete analogy of how love can increase and decrease. My love for pickleball decreased for one very simple reason. I don't want you guys to miss this and all the silliness. Because I neglected it. Because I didn't spend the time with it. And here's the scary thing. That can happen to you and the Lord. Did you know that? See, sometimes we make spiritual things so different than other things. But why? Why would you think any differently? Why would you think that you can neglect the Lord? You could go on and do your own things, focus on your own paths, give him half of your energy, and yet you would love him just as much. No, it works the same way. If you neglect the Lord, you're heading out the door. The question I have for everybody in this room, I want you to really ask yourself, where are you with the Lord? See, we all have peaks and we have valleys. We have everything in between. But where are you? Are these the glory days? Is your heart ablaze with love for the Lord? Are you just kind of hanging on? Are you on your way out? Where are you? Where are you? You realize the, the path of apostasy? Have you ever seen someone apostatize? It's terrible. It's really awful. And it comes to a point when they apostatize that you can grab their ankles, beg and plead, and they won't hear it, right? Sometimes they do, sometimes they come back. We pray for those to come back. But it comes to a point when they're out the door and you try to talk to them and you can't talk to them anymore. I've met people like that. I know a lot of people like that, actually. That at one point we could talk about spiritual things, but they've gone so cold and they've rejected the Lord so much, you can't even mention his name to them. 
It's like using a cuss word. How does that happen? How do you have somebody? Sometimes they were teachers. Sometimes they were preachers. Sometimes they were friends, family, spouses. How do you have somebody who used to be passionate about the Lord, who walked with the Lord, who evangelized with the Lord, who maybe was outpacing everybody else, and now they're so hostile you can't even talk to them about the Lord? How does that happen? Let me tell you how it doesn't happen. Here's how it doesn't happen. They don't walk out there one day, stub their toe on a rock, curse God and say, curse God and die, and then leave the church. That's a fantasy. That's not how it happens. If you're preparing yourself against that, you're preparing yourself against the wrong foe. That is not how people apostatize. You don't just go stub your toe, all of a sudden decide to reject God. That's not how it happens. Rather, let me tell you how it happens. Look back to that verse. Be careful lest you drift away. That's what happens. Apostasy is slow. It happens very, very slowly. It happens when your heart gets more and more over to sin. And the things of God become smaller and smaller and smaller. And you start drifting away. Now, when you hear that analogy of drifting away, what kind of analogy is that? What do you, what do you imagine? What drifts? What's drifting away? Does anybody see the water? Does anybody have a water analogy? Is that just me? When I see drifting, I think of water. I think of things in the water drifting away. So I want to give you a thought experiment. Imagine you get on a boat. And you, have, you plot your path. And you say, I'm going from here to there. And imagine there is far away. And you plot it out. Does this sound familiar, Solomon's? You plot it out. And you say, I'm going from here to there. And everything is set. And you're like, boom, we're going in the right direction. And then you do nothing. And you go take a shower, you watch TV, you go to sleep, you repeat week after week, maybe you exercise occasionally, you check several months later. Now, I'm not talking about your fancy boats that have this autocorrect. I'm not sure there's any autocorrect. I'm talking about a regular boat. Not that fancy self-driving stuff. Just a regular old boat. You plot it out, and then you walk away. You come back two, three, four weeks later. Does anybody think that you're going to end up not drifting away. Would anybody think that? Would anybody be surprised? I can't believe it. I've sailed off course. I'm pretty sure this is, I've never, I've never been on a boat. I've never driven a boat. Some of you sailors, people, I get it. You guys know more than me. You can tell me after the sermon if this is accurate or not. But something tells me, my bottom dollar, that that boat is going to drift away due to your neglect, right? But guess what? Sometimes we do that spiritually, don't we? We get fired up. Maybe when we first get to the Lord, maybe we dedicate ourselves to the Lord, whatever. We plot our path, and then we go hang out. We go take naps. We go watch TV. We sleep. We neglect it, and we think, it's all going to be okay, right? We're just going to make it there magically. No. You're going to drift away. Be careful, lest you drift away. You need to make sure that you're not pulled away by the current. Why does the boat drift? It's because there's a current. Because you can, you can be going in the right direction, but that current, those forces will knock you off course. Is that right, sailors? Am I saying something that's not true? Will the current move you out? Will the current pull you off? Even if you set in the right direction, will it, it usually doesn't like pull you back right in the perfect, that'd be amazing, that'd be a miracle. If the current just pulls you left and pulls you right and it just, you'd be praising God. I don't know how this happened. That's not how it usually works. The current moves you away. Now let me ask you this, Christian. 
Are there any currents against you? Is the current your friend? There's a wonderful song. I probably should pick it tonight. It talks about Christian soldier and how we are Christian soldiers and we're fighting against three enemies. What are the enemies? What's the enemies? The world? You guys heard this? The flesh and the devil. That's your current. So if you just sit there and coast and you think you're going to be making it to the promised land, you are kidding yourselves. Every time I see you, Johnny, I think about that Sunday school series that you did on Pilgrim's Progress. That book, there's a kid version that he recommended to me. It's called Dangerous Journey. It's a good name for that book. Because if you read Pilgrim's Progress from start to finish, Christian Pilgrim is going through dangerous things. And that book is supposed to represent your Christian life. And it sold so many copies because it does represent your Christian life. Because we are on a dangerous journey. There is, in fact, waters and waves that are going to try to drift us away. So we need to be careful lest we drift away. The question is, okay, what happens if we drift away? We don't want to drift away, but but what is the consequence of drifting away? Look at verse 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every transgression and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we neglect, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what happens if you neglect? What happens if you drift? Sailors, what happens when you drift away? What happens when you think you're going on one path, but you find out you're going on another? Right? The waters are kind of dangerous. All you got to do is read the Bible to find that out. Just hanging out, drifting on the water, weeks on end, kind of dangerous. There's a whole bunch of things that can happen. You can run out of supplies. But there's one particular thing that's particularly dangerous, and it's running into rocks. It's going down. If you drift, you never know. You might hit a rock. You might hit an iceberg. Remember the Titanic? The, The ship that would never sink. That's what they said. They boasted God couldn't even sink that ship. Well, they turned into a giant rock of ice in the water, and that ship went tumbling down. Well, this world is full of rocks, and it's trying to bring you down. So what, is it, what does that mean, though? So you're going back on this analogy. You're on a boat. You're trying to travel to the promised land. You're drifting, and you could run into rocks. What are the consequences of that? Is it just earthly chastisement? embarrassment, humiliation, lack of eternal rewards? What happens if you go to drift and you hit the rocks? Well, let's go to the Bible. Let's find out. First Timothy chapter 1. Can you turn there? First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what the Word of God says. This is what happens when you drift. This is what happens when you hit those rocks. First Timothy 1, 18 and 19. This... I charge, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. So let me stop here. Here's what's going on. Paul is encouraging Timothy to wage the good warfare. Everybody see that? It's right there in verse 18. Keep on fighting. Go on, pilgrim. Keep going on the path. And how do we do that? Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, concerning the faith, having suffered 
shipwreck. That's what happens when you hit those rocks. You, hit, you suffer shipwreck. Now, let's go back to the Titanic. What happens when the Titanic hits the iceberg? What happens? You have a boat that floats, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes into that boat floating. Again, I'm speaking way beyond my pay grade. I don't know all the things that make boats float, but I know it doesn't take a lot to make them sink. And something suggests to me, and the Titanic proves this, even if you have the greatest boat ever designed, when you got a giant hole in it and water goes rushing in, the boat sinks. Isn't that true? Isn't that how it works? You got a boat with a big hole, a bunch of water, and you're going down. And what happens to everybody on that boat? When a boat goes shipwrecked, they better get on another boat. Otherwise, they're going down. But there is no other boat, is there? What other boat is there? There is no other boat. So when your boat goes down, you're headed to hell. It's just that simple. It, it really doesn't take a PhD. You don't need John Calvin. You don't need Augustine. You don't need anybody to figure that out. All you need is a little bit of common sense, an open Bible to realize. If you go shipwreck, you're not making it into the kingdom of God. The Bible says, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. Pretty clear, right? Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. If you stand before Jesus Christ on that last day and you have no faith, where are you going? Heaven or hell? Just imagine. You have no faith. You stand before him. You are an unbeliever. You think you're going to the kingdom of God? No, you're not. Matthew 24, 13 says, but he who endures to the end shall be, shall be saved. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Do you see the conditional clause there? You must endure. You have to. Now again, look at the warning again. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. What is being contrasted is the punishment of breaking the law of Moses and what happens if you neglect so great a salvation. What would happen if you broke one of the law of Moses? You would be certainly punished. You would not escape Back to the Pilgrim's Progress. One of my favorite scenes of Pilgrim's Progress is just hilarious. It comes out of nowhere. You have Pilgrim, and he breaks a command. He goes on, he listens to a worldly wise man. He tries to travel through the city of legality and tries to accomplish salvation by good works. That's what it symbolized. And he faces Moses. And Moses jumps on top of him, and he beats him senseless. This is actually in the book. It's crazy. It happens. And he cries out, have mercy on me. And Moses says, I have no mercy. And he continues to beat him senselessly. That's what happens. If you break the law of Moses, you'll be punished. It was just that simple. And he's contrasting the severity and the mercilessness of the law of Moses with what happens if you neglect so great a salvation. You shall not escape. Please. If you walk away from this sermon with any other message, know this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall you escape? Well, some say, well, my pastor said growing up. Some say, well, according to my theology. Someone says, when I was five, I prayed. Someone says, hey, you know, when I was 15 years old, I knew I was a Christian. Beloved, let me just tell you a little secret. How shall you escape so great a salvation? None of that will cause you to escape. None of that. They won't. All your excuses and you will find yourself perishing in that day. Don't trust in your excuses. Don't trust in bad theologies. But rather, here's what you should do. First Peter 5.8. Beloved, be sober. 
be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist them steadfastly in the faith. Don't trust in anything other than watching out, not neglecting. See, to obey this text, obey this scripture, is to not neglect. Because if you neglect, you shall not escape. It's that simple. It isn't complex. You, you neglect, you'll shipwreck, you'll die. If you're watchful, you won't drift, and you'll survive. So, in a little bit of the sermon left, we'll talk about how you can not drift away. How can you obey this commandment and not neglect so great a salvation? And there's a couple ways. Here's the first. The first is the very beginning of the sermon. The first way you can not drift away, not have to worry about getting the punishment of neglecting your great salvation, is very simple. Heed the warning. I'll put it differently. Realize that there's a warning. See, this passage is written to you. And that, that shouldn't be shocking to anybody. It's to you. Let me try to prove this to you. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see that? It's not them. It's not those. It's we. The author is putting himself in this. He's talking to believers. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We shall not escape. So he's talking to us. The first thing to make sure that this doesn't end up being you is to recognize he's talking to you. That's what you have to do. If you reject that great salvation, then you will suffer the consequences. Another reality to this is once you realize that this is addressed to you and realize that he's addressing a very real danger, you need to be watchful. When I was in the army... Sometimes one of the things I hated doing the most, let me start doing this in basic training. One of the things I hated doing the most is doing guard duty, right? We'd have to wake up in the middle of the night and watch guard. And back then, the drill sergeant sometimes would wait until it got really, really late. And we were already sleep deprived. I was extra sleep deprived. I decided to hang up, hang out with Stephanie the night before instead of going to sleep. Bad idea. Because what I didn't know is when I got to basic, they were going to make me stay up another night. So it was 48 hours. I was so sleepy, I was marching and falling asleep. I'd go to the bathroom and fall asleep. It was awful. And if they caught you, it was very bad. So I was extremely sleep deprived. And then, instead of letting you get a full night's sleep, they'd make you do guard duty at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. they just wake you up and you had to stand there. And there was nothing going on. Just a bunch of soldiers sleeping. And you had to watch. But if you fell asleep... It wasn't going to go well for you because those drill sergeants were waiting for you to fall asleep. See, you realized that you needed to stay awake. When here's the analogy I'm trying to bring to you. Stay awake. Be on guard. The drill sergeant's out there. The real danger is out there. So the first way that we can obey this command is just stay awake. Recognize there's a danger. Recognize that there's something to be concerned about. Now, I hope I've convinced all of you, but some of you may be stubborn. So I'm going to show you one more passage. Hopefully you all, none of you will walk away from this sermon saying, that's about somebody else. Jamie has some weird theology. 
but I don't need to take heed because it can't happen to me. All right, one more text. First Corinthians chapter nine. Turn over there. First Corinthians chapter nine. We'll look at verse 24 through 27. First Corinthians nine, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight, not as one who beats in the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see the context? He's saying that we're going after a prize. Not a perishable one, but an imperishable one. And Paul is describing his life as one who does not beat against the air, but we wrestle against what? Not the air. Not make-believe. It's that current I talked about. We wrestle against not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and spiritual acts of darkness, all of that, right? So he says, I do this. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it to subjection. Now, now here's the kicker. Lest when I preach to others, I myself should have become disqualified. You see his attitude? His attitude is that of the author of Hebrews. I need to be on guard lest I become shipwrecked, lest I neglect so great a salvation. Okay? This is Paul's attitude. This is what the author of Hebrews is warning you against. Listen to the word of God. Heed. Take warning. So the first way to prevent us from drifting away is very simple. is to take heed. Heed the warning. Don't grab a theological knife and say, I'm just cutting this section out of the Bible, taking that book Hebrews, and I'm closing it, and I'll figure that out some other time. Look, there's plenty of things you need to figure out in Hebrews. I get it. But this shouldn't be one of them. It's so plain. Why would you need to figure that out? Take heed. Lest you drift away. All right, here's the second way that you can prevent or that you can obey this command and not drift away. It's very simple. It's just prayer. Just be in prayer. It's amazing. The God of the universe says, I will hear what you ask me. And if it's according to my will, I'll give it to you. Now, what could be more according to God's will than for you not to drift away? Think about that. You know, sometimes we say, God, please heal Jamie's voice. Sometimes you say this, sometimes you don't. If it be according to your will. Please let his house sell if it's according to your will. Please, God. Please let it, according to your will, right? Sometimes we say that. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing. In fact, some people try to discourage that, shockingly enough, as if they've never heard Jesus says, if it be according to your will. Look, if your theology makes you more holy than Jesus, something's wrong with your theology, okay? There's nothing wrong with saying that, if it be according to your will. But there are some things that you don't ever have to ask if it be according to your will. Amen, is that true? There's some things you just don't have to ask. Why? Because he's already revealed that it's according to his will. First Thessalonians chapter 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Men, if you're struggling, women, doesn't matter. If you're struggling, feel some lust coming in, God, 
please rescue me if it be according to your will. You don't have to say that last part. God, please prevent me from doing this sin. Amen. Every time, right? Every single time because it's according to his will. Well, do you think it's according to his will that you not neglect so great a salvation? Of course it is according to his will that you not neglect so great a salvation. So it's very, very simple. If you feel yourself drifting away because you've heeded the warning and you're watching out and you look at your soul and you're taking inventory and you realize, you know what? I'm not loving the Lord like I used to. My love is drying up. I feel like I'm on my way out. The only way you even know that you're in that situation if you are taking heed. But if that happens to you and you say, God, bring me back, you think God's going to say, no, I'm not bringing you back. You're just going bye-bye. No, he's not. So you have not because you ask not. Very simple. If you find yourself in a lukewarm state, if you find your heart shriveling up, ask God to set it on fire. Very simple. I know a person who apostatizes, and various things happen to them. Family members die, stress at work, all kinds of things. And they start getting flutters. I don't know if you ever had, I have up close personal experience with apostates. I don't know if you have, but I have. And I've seen them start to start saying things like, I think I'm going to come back to God. Sometimes they say, not quite like that too. Sometimes they say, I think I'm going to come back to Christianity. I don't know what that is. You come back to God. Anyways, I hear them say these things, right? And then a couple weeks later, it all turned into not. But you know, when I asked them, did you ask God to bring you back? No, they didn't. They don't. They try to come back to God, but without talking to him, good luck. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How are you going to get saved? How are you going to come back to God and refuse to talk to him? Good luck. Good luck making reconciliation with anybody, by the way, that you don't talk to. Reconciliation comes with talking, with communication. So if you find yourself drifting away, ask God, set my heart on fire. Lord, it's cold. Lord, I've gone callous. Bring it back. I don't know what time it is. I think we're running out of time. Let me get to the third point. Here's the third point. The third way that you can keep yourself from apostasy, keep yourself on fire for the Lord, is what you're doing right now. It's gathering together with the saints. In fact, in the very book of Hebrews, that's what he tells us. He tells us not to neglect the gathering of the saints. Sometimes, and I've been there with you all, sometimes you go to church, and you walk away, and you think, did anything happen? I mean, four hours of my day went by, but did anything happen? You just don't necessarily feel any different. Hopefully, sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. Come on. You don't have to confess it here. But if you're anything like me, sometimes that happens. But guess what? Sometimes I eat food, and I don't feel any different either, especially when I overeat and I eat too much. I just don't feel any different. But guess what? If you don't eat, you'll feel a whole lot different. Gathering together with church is your refueling station. It keeps you afloat. So continue to gather. And there's so many other ways. Go read Psalm 1. Meditate on God's word. All of these various things. But the main thing I just want to leave you with is be on guard. Watch out. Pray. Stay with God's people and keep your heart ablaze. And the last thing I'll say to you is if any of you examine yourself and one, see that you're not even 
in the faith, repent. Trust in the Lord. Call upon his name. And he'll bring you to salvation. Some of you may not even be on the race. This sermon may have not been about you. Because this sermon is about believers. But if you are here and you do not know if you know the Lord, you can come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Neil, come talk to any Christian. Call upon his name. He will hear you, he will save you, and he will bring you into the kingdom. And for the rest of you, I just ask you to examine yourself. Ask yourself, where am I? Is this sermon about me? Have I been drifting away? Have I been distracted by all these things in the world? And my soul is being slowly but surely drifting from the Lord. Because if that's you, look at this passage again. Remind yourself what happens at the end of that rope. What happens if you keep drifting away? How shall you escape? You shall not escape. But there's good news. God has brought you here. You can escape before you neglect so great a salvation. You see that? It's kind of like hell. There's all these interesting TV shows. There was a TV show. I'm not, I don't recommend it, but I'm just telling you. There was a TV show called Prison Break. It was this long series. They would just be in prison and they'd break out. People are fascinated with that concept of going into a prison and breaking out. Well, there's one prison you'll never break out of. It's the prison of hell. You know what the Bible calls hell prison? Revelation chapter 20. You're not breaking out of hell. That prison, once you're in, you're not getting out. But I have good news, and I'll wrap up the sermon with this. You can stay out of it. You can't break it out, but you can prevent ever going there in the first place. That's your escape, is never going there. Anybody, let's wrap this sermon up. Anybody know Romans chapter 8, verse 1? Kids, anybody have that memory verse? Romans chapter 8, verse 1? Come on, kids. Who knows it? Turn over there. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's now no condemnation in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us enough to warn us. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go to hell. You died on that cross. And you rose again. And you offer our salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray you would help us all to not neglect so great a salvation. And Lord, we trust that those who know you will heed your warning. And they will not neglect so great a salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.